Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, if you're familiar with uh, something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, it basically says that after a certain point in life, um, you start to ask big questions, basically, because uh, it's a pyramid scheme that the first things in life you're supposed to be concerned about, uh, making sure there's food in the cupboards, that you've got enough clothes on your back, a roof on your head. But then once you kind of have those things, those basic necessities of life covered, you start asking stuff, uh, bigger questions, like... Um, you know, how do they get the caramel in the caramel bar? And uh, did Elvis really die? You know, I wonder. Uh, no, this, the, the more serious, important questions of life, like well, I've got another 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, depending on how old I am, on this rock, and what am I going to do with it? Um, so in the mid-2000s, there was two books that came out that were really popular that tried to answer uh, that question from two different angles. One was The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, and the other one was called The Secret by Rhonda Byron. And um, with The Purpose Driven Life, uh, Warren was basically saying the purpose of life is to know God, to have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, and then after you have that, to serve other people, to pour your life out for the good of other people, for the good of humanity. And uh, the opposite book, The Secret, she came at it from the angle, sorry, The Purpose Driven Life, just a little asterisk, just happened to be kind of a big seller. It became... Um, the second most translated book in the entire history of the world after the Bible, and um, it was the best-selling nonfiction book in history, so kind of a big deal. Um, the other book, The Secret, um, did really well. It sold 19 million, but the sequels didn't sell as much. I guess if you call your first book The Secret, and then people read it and figure out what The Secret is, then the books afterwards probably, you know, cats out of the bag probably aren't going to sell as well, so not the, a publishing uh, person's dream, but the secret dealt with this, basically, that in life, you want to get what you can for yourself, uh, and that there's something she called the law of attraction, that if you focus on things, and if you devote your energy and your attention to getting your goals, whatever they are, uh, you can achieve them in life. So, basically, those two schools of thought boil down to this, that life can either be about you, or life can be about others. Life can be about getting, or life can be about giving, self-serving, or self-sacrifice. Um, and this matters because um, every day life keeps moving on, and whether we really stop and think about uh, what our life is going to be about, it is about something. And uh, it's been said, you know, if you hang out in a garage long enough, that doesn't mean that you become a truck, or if you hang out in the kitchen, doesn't mean you become a hamburger, right? So coming to church and knowing um, that, you know, the Bible teaches you good things about life, that's not enough. We have to click on our brains and engage and, and actually think about what it is that I want my life to be about, okay? So with that in mind, uh, Marley's going to come and read this morning's scripture. Or, yes, okay. It's like a game show. That's right. You're going to descend from the ceiling like Owen Hart. Okay. Good morning. So Adam asked me to read the scripture, and I thought, you know, I should be really clever and memorize it. Except I didn't find out what it was until this I morning. I don't have memorized it. <laughs> so I haven't got it memorized. Anyway, so here it is. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, 
that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Thank you, Marley, for reading God's Word. Um, so the Olympics just wrapped up, and uh, it's a fitting metaphor that the author of Hebrew uses uh, about life being a race. Um, in a race, you have a certain track that you're running on, and then you have an end line. So whether it's the skeleton or the speed skating, whatever, you have a certain thing that you're trying to do, and you have a finish line. And the Bible says that life is similar to that. That's why it uses that metaphor, that life is supposed to be about a specific something. There's a track we're running on, and that there's an end line. There's a goal at the end. Now, there's numerous things the Bible says about what life is supposed to be about, and uh, this sermon's just going to cover one of them, right? And so that's why we have 52 weeks of the year. Uh, you have to keep coming back to church, keep sticking it in, and uh, over time, the rest of the stuff will fall into place, and you'll figure it out. But um, for this morning, really, in a nutshell, what life is about, what the race is about, is serving. Um, we're going to look at three things. What the race is, uh, what hinders the race, and lastly, how do we actually do it? How do we actually run the race well? So the first thing, uh, what is the race? What should our daily life consist of? If you look at verse 1, it says, uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, sin, which clings so closely, and run with endurance the race that is set before us. That word that we translate race comes from a Hebrew word that we get the word agony from. So agonos. Um, and in the ancient Olympics, uh, you know, in our day, the hockey, the, the hockey tournament, the women's and men's hockey tournament is kind of like the apex of the Olympics. In the ancient Olympics, um, the most special prized event was called the pentathlon. And it was 10 events, javelin, sprinting, stuff like that. But the end last event of the pentathlon was a wrestling match. And, you know, when we think of wrestling, we normally think like WWE and some guy busting a ketchup packet on his face and saying, I'm bloody... But this thing, when you finished the pentathlon and you wrestled this other person who was a trained athlete, you were a bloody mess. This thing really took its toll on you, took its toll on you, and it was brutal. So hence why he can translate that race, but that word means agony. So um, the Bible's great in that sense that it gives us the ability to cope with life by telling us up front what life can be like. Um, think, of it, think of two different people. Say two guys, um, both their wives are pregnant, and they're going to go and, and be in the um, delivery room. And one guy has this flowery, head-in-the-sand thing of like, oh, it's just great. There's not going to be any problems. It's going to be a breeze. Um, he's going to have a rude awakening call when that, uh, when that actually happens. And if you're of the gender who actually gives birth to child, you, children, you can tune out. But for guys, you have to go in and think, this is going to be extremely... Um, Messy, for lack of better words. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to be the one on the floor, and your wife's going to be the one helping you up. So the Bible's helping us by saying, look, life is hard. Life's all kinds of other things. Life's good, great, all that. But you have to come in and think, no, there's going to be times when life is brutal, and it's tough, and it's agonizing. Otherwise, you're going to be toast. We have to go into the delivery room of life with our eyes wide open. Which brings us to the question, well, why does life hurt? And again, the Bible is so great. It gives us lots of different, probably about half a dozen reasons as to why there is suffering. And Hebrews talks about, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about two of them. Um, and it basically says, life hurts so that things can get better. Life hurts so that things can get better. Um, in the bit that I have, it's, we'll get into it, it's going to say, look, life hurts so that we can make other people better. And in the, the following rest of the chapter that Brent will tackle next week, it's saying, life 
hurts so that we can get better. And even though that sounds kind of counterintuitive, it makes sense. Everything in life revolves pain if there's going to be pleasure. So if you go to the doctor and you say, look, I want to have a long life and I don't want my body to be jelly and die young, they're going to say, all right, well, in order for you to you know, have a healthy body, you're going to have to groan. You're going to have to sweat. You're going to have to exert yourself. Um, you know, that's what the treadmill's there for. That's what the weights are for. So if it's a paradox, right? If I, when I do bicep curls, or if I do bicep curls, <laughs> this is a recording, so when I used to do bicep curls, uh, you know, what's happening? I'm tearing my muscles apart. I'm ripping it apart. So I'm getting weaker so that I can get stronger. It's this weird paradox in life that suffering ultimately brings about better things and, and, uh, and more health. So think about it. If you want to become a patient person, um, you need to be put in taxing situations. Or if you want to have a strong faith, your faith needs to be tested. Or um, if you want to become a more courageous person, you have to go through things that you're afraid of, right? So, so life hurts so that things can get better. But um, let's get back to this cheery verse. Uh, so when he uses that word, there's other points. When I did a, a word search for where that appears in the rest of the New Testament, uh, there's a few times when Paul uses it to talk about his own life. So um, in Philippians 1, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's that same word, agonos, which in Hebrews 12 is translated race, but in Philippians 1 it's cha- uh, translated suffer. And in Colossians 2, it says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those who are at Laodicea, for all who have not seen my face. It's interesting that Paul is an older man at this point, and he's still single. He never settled down. He never had kids. And he could by all means say, look, I could find a lady friend. I could try and have kids at this point in my life. I could get a retirement package. But the reason... Colossians, you don't owe me any, or I don't owe the Colossians anything. I don't owe the people in Laodicea anything. But I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I'm giving myself away. I'm putting myself through all kinds of pain so you can have pleasure. I'm hurting so that you can be happy. And uh, the last one in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, uh, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, uh, we, are bold in our, we are bold in our God to declare to you the gospel. So over and over again, that word keeps coming up that I'm hurting to make you happy or I'm going through pain to give you pleasure. In other words, I'm serving you, right? So like I said, in so many of the ways that if you want to serve and you want to make the world a better place and you want to help people, it costs you something. Think of something as simple as just listening to someone. Oftentimes when we're listening, it's tempting to want to butt in and speak, right? We have um, this obnoxious thing going on inside of us when we're really not listening we're just trying to wait to speak but God gave us two ears and one mouth and so to really listen to someone and to really hear them out it hurts you to have to say I'm going to bite my tongue and I'm just going to listen to you and I'm going to give you myself as opposed to make you uh, listen to me right so that principle comes out all over the place but one of the most uh, famous examples I could think of was Mr. Terry Fox um, my dad took this picture, actually. That's on the highway from Fredericton to St. John. And uh, he was on the way to pick up his uncle, and uh, he heard on the radio that there was this guy trying to run across the country. And so he got out of the car and uh, snapped a picture of him. And he's still got him in, 
in the mid-jump, and, and we don't have the negative of that, so that's one of my favorite possessions that I own. But Terry, for me, is my favorite athlete of all time, and I've always been really good in, or really um, interested in sports. I've never been good at them, but uh, Terry is my favorite of all time because Terry used his athletic abilities, he used his body to serve other people. In other words, the pain and the hurt that he went through wasn't to get himself healthy. He was going to die. It was to make other people healthy, right? All his race was about was putting himself through agony and pain and the brutalness of running a marathon every day. I couldn't run a marathon once or it would kill me. Terry ran a marathon every single day from St. John's, Newfoundland to Thunder Bay, Ontario. Why? For other people, right? Um, And I've got a quote from him. Uh, I do. I really do. Um, I don't feel like this is unfair. This is him speaking about his cancer. I don't feel like this is unfair. That's the thing about cancer. I'm not the only one. It happens all the time to other people. I'm not special. This just intensifies what I did. It gives me more meaning. It'll inspire more people. And this is the... It took cancer to realize that being self-centered is not the way to live. The answer is to try and help other people. So what's Terry saying? Terry's saying if there was ever a person on the face of the earth that could sit in his own self-pity and wallow and say, I just want to lay here. I just want to die. I'm cut down in my prime. I'm a young guy. I'm supposed to be going to college. I was a good basketball player. It's me. I should be the one to say, I just want to live the last however many months I've got trying to soak in as much good as I can get for me. But instead, what does he do? He says, I'm going to spend the last bit of energy that I've got pushing myself, pouring myself out for other people on one leg. So that's an amazing um, paradigm shift. That's a, way, that's a totally different mindset to approach life. And uh, so that, that talks about what is the race. The race is about us giving ourselves away for other people to make the world a better place, to help other people, to serve. But um, the tricky thing is what hinders the race? What blocks us from actually doing that? It's one thing to know that the Bible tells you to love your neighbor as yourself, um, but how do you actually over? What are the things that block us from doing that? And two things, seduction and doubt. Seduction and doubt. So when the book of Hebrews was written, and we've been going through the, the book over time as a church, um, and it over and over again addresses all kinds of things about pain and hurt because these people, the letter that the Hebrews was written to, um, have been going through all kinds of difficult things in life. It's basically like an open pastoral letter saying, keep going. As Brent um, opened off however many months ago saying, Jesus is awesome, stick with him, right? He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to say, look, I know life is brutal. I know life is hard, but stick with him. Um, And that's why in verse 4 he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In their time, the problem that they were facing was oppression, right? To be a Christian at that point in history was really difficult for the reason that all kinds of forces from the outside were trying to make you to stop being a Christian or stop living that way. Right? So the government or different religious um, bodies were trying to force you to give up what you have or to stop living a certain way. And they were willing to come from the outside and try and hurt you and verbally mess around with you or sometimes physical stuff. But in our culture, it's the opposite way around. The, one of the big challenges to live the Christian life and to believe the Christian message isn't oppression. Things aren't coming at us from the outside. And we really don't know anything about oppression. I mean being made fun of at the water cooler because you go to church or some hot kid in high school saying, I want to maintain my virginity, and someone says, ha-ha, you want to keep your V-card? Like, that's not 
oppression. That's not anywhere near what it's like for people in other parts of the world. Uh, I just heard a couple weeks ago about a guy who's smuggling Bibles into North Korea. And for him, he got caught by Kim Jong-il's crazy son, and now he's locked in jail. And that, that is oppression. So what's coming against us isn't that. It's seduction. Um, if you think of the Hunger Games, if you're familiar with the books or the movie, there's two types of people in the books and the movies. There's people in the district who can't live the way they want to live because they're being oppressed. All right? But the other people in the capital, they don't really live the way they should live because they're slaves of something else. They're slaves. They're being seduced. They care about food and entertainment and celebrity gossip, and their whole life is just caught up in this big wheel of nonsense and, and things that don't really matter. So in a sense, they're just as much slaves in the capital as people who are in the district, right? And so the author of Hebrews, he's not speaking to us directly, but in a way, he is, because he's saying the same thing. Um, we can be entertained to death, really. What's going to happen tonight? The Oscars. What happened the last two weeks? The Olympics. What happened before that? Uh, the Super Bowl. What's going to happen this summer? The World Cup, right? There's just a never-ending cycle of entertainment and things to grab your attention um, from the time you're a little baby with those electronic toys and stuff to the, literally the time you die, you can be entertained to death. You can be seduced so that you don't serve people. You serve yourself. And John Calvin, um, he put it like this. He said, there are various burdens which delay and impede our spiritual course, which is his way of saying the race. Uh, love of the present life, pleasures of the world, lust of the flesh, worldly cares. Whosoever would run in the course prescribed by Christ must first disentangle himself from all these. And uh, he speaks a lot better than I do because he lived a long time ago and they spoke better English back then. So, um, so that's seduction. We can not run the race because we're being seduced by other things in our life. The other thing that hinders our race is doubt. We um, can be good-hearted people and really care and really serve other people, but you get burned out. You do. You doubt whether what you're doing makes a difference. You can doubt um, that it's really going to count for anything, and um, it's hard. If you've lived for a couple days where you're really trying to serve people and really give yourself um, away, so you're, you're at work and you're saying, how can I make this the best work environment? How can I put a smile on customer's face? How can I serve my employer? Your entire life from the time you get up to the time you go to sleep is serving. I want to give myself away. One day will feel like a week, and a week will feel like a month, like, you'll age in dog years. It's really, really tough to do this. And you start to doubt whether this really makes a difference. And um, what he's saying is, what I'm trying to say is doubting is saying, is there a point to any of this? Does it really matter if I help somebody and they don't reciprocate the way that I help them or you want to serve them in a certain way and they don't seem to respond or, in fact, you're really sunshiny to them and they're really mean to you? All that stuff can make you doubt, like I said, um, and make you want to just say, I'm not going to live this way. I'm not going to run this race that way. To summarize, I had a friend um, who used to run with ankle weights on. And in the verse when it says, take off the sins and weights that so easily entangle, we need to find a way to remove seduction and doubt from our lives so that we're not running with work boots and ankle weights. We're running with ASICs and really streamlined clothes so that we're um, quick on our feet. Which brings us to, how do we actually do that? How do we actually run a race? Um, and I would say that you have to look at each one of those things, seduction by itself, doubt by itself, and then we'll look at who ultimately served us because um, that's the dynamite. So this is where he gets into the witnesses. 
Um, we already kind of talked about Hebrews, where, why it was written. The meat and potatoes, if you kind of do a quick overview of Hebrews, um, he's saying Jesus is better than everything. All right? Compare him to anything you want. Jesus wins out every time. So chapter 1, he says, you want spirituality? Um, well, Jesus is better than angels and spirits. Um, you want chapter 3. We all want heroes in our life. We want someone to emulate, someone to look up to. Well, Moses was the greatest man um, that the Jews would have had up until that point. He set two million people who were oppressed free. They, and yet Jesus is better than Moses. Chapter 4, he says, we want rest. You know, um, one of the reasons we're just so overworked in our culture and just running like crazy and frantic is because we're trying to prove ourselves, and we just can't have peace of mind to sit still. Well, in chapter 4, it says Jesus is our rest. In chapter 8, it says he's our high priest. We can have peace with God. We can know um, that we don't have to try and prove ourselves and run around like crazy because he is better than all those things. Whatever the, whatever the thing that competes against God and Jesus is, Jesus wins out every time. And then they could come back and say, well, yeah, but you don't really know what it's like for me. You know, you want me to live this life. You want me to serve like crazy and stuff. But you don't know what I've been through. You don't know my life. You don't know the ups and downs and things like that. Um, and then he comes in chapter 11 and says, look, look at all these people. They lived at different times and different places, but they all had one thing in common, faith. They believed. And in that, God had made some kind of promise or something specific to each one, and they held on to that promise. And in the end, what does that teach us? God is faithful. God is reliable. That's one of the great things about Christianity. We don't have a religion that's kind of just created on the spot. If you had a time machine, you could go back through all kinds of centuries and talk to people and, and do an eyewitness thing where you could say, okay, so what did God tell you? And they would say, he gave me this promise. Okay, and in the end, did you, did you stick with it? Yes, I did. And is he faithful? Did he come through? And time and time again, we would have this long history of people after people after people different nationalities, different countries who all have that same thread. This is what Christianity gives you, is saying, we know God. We know time and time again, he's faithful, he's loyal, he's dependable, he's reliable. We've proved it, okay? And so Jesus is better than everything, including selfishness, including seduction, okay? In um, Philippians chapter 1, it says, this is Paul speaking again. He's considering dying. He's an old man and he's run his race, and he's at the end of his life, but there's still some things that he wants to help people with in, Philippi, in, uh, in Philippi, and he says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Which I shall choose between the two, my di- um, I'm not sure, basically. And then he goes on and says, I do want to stay around, in other words, to help you and support you, because for me, living day in and day out, as I serve and as I give myself away, it is Christ. There's, he's saying there's some union that I experience with Christ by giving myself away, by living for other people. I have a deeper relationship with God than if I was a selfish person. And it's hard to put your finger on just why that is, but all kinds of people, witnesses, can say the same thing. That those, and I've been in the game probably almost getting close to 10 years this summer, I've been a Christian that long, and I could say when I compare two types of people that I've met who go to church. Some people have a deep, meaningful relationship with God, but it also, coincidentally, they serve a whole lot. And then other people say, God, I believe in Jesus, he's my savior, but they don't have a close personal walk with God by any stretch of the imagination. And then I also think, well, you also don't serve a whole lot. And so I'm not sure exactly why that is, but you can talk to people and say, like Paul, 
to live as Christ, if you give yourself away, if you live for the good of other people, somehow you'll have a closer walk with God. You'll know Christ better um, than if you were seduced by the world and just were living for yourself. Um, and I think one, one last thing on that is uh, Steve Nash is about to retire from the L.A. Lakers. Um, he's banged up. And so they're making a documentary of him trying to come back through rehab. And, and when I watched it, it said uh, he's really self-aware. He says, when an athlete loses his skill, they lose a big part of themselves. It's been a huge part of themselves, a part of their purpose, self-esteem. It's like a death. So on one hand, I've got 18 years to look back on. But on the other hand, I'll never be the same again. So Steve Nash is saying, look, I was a two-time MVP. I played for the Los Angeles Lakers. I came pretty close to winning a championship on many, time, many accounts. I was a great ball player, one of the all-time leading assists. And what do I have now? He's in the, in the video. It's really sad. He's depressed. He's bummed out. But you look at Paul, who has the complete opposite of that. He's not rich. He's not famous. He never got married. He never had kids. He was never a success the way that Rhonda Byron and The Secret would tell you that's how you have a successful life. And yet, he says, I, I want to go another 10 years. And if I'm going to be here, I want to work. I want to serve. I want to help people. Because for me, to live is Christ. The two go hand in hand. So um, that is how we beat seduction, is that we realize that by living for other people, we'll have a closer walk with God, and that beats anything that the world can promise you. Acts 20, verse 35 sums it up. It says, in all things, Paul, again, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, helping the weak, we remember the, uh, the, the words of the Lord Jesus. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So that's the, pa- that's the practical. You aren't going to be fulfilled by playing Candy Crush for the rest of your life. You're only going to be fulfilled by giving your life away for the good of other people. Um, and I've been there. Uh, so, so that's seduction. How do we beat doubt? Um, lots, like I said, lots of people have servant hearts. They really care. But time and time again, they get burnt out. They get depressed. They get hurt. And life eats them up and spits them out, okay? So 1 Corinthians, this is, the, this is the, how you solve that riddle. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. What Paul says is, whether you see the fruit, the results that you want right away, never, never count out God. You don't know the long-term impact that you're making when you serve people, when you give yourself away. And um, i got two stories to prove that. One is, um, last year, I got to work with a really, really great lady, uh, Barbara Pierce. She was a kindergarten teacher, and she was retiring. And um, it was a couple days before her last, her last days at school, and some high school kids came in. They were all in grade 12. They were about to graduate. And they came in and said, do you remember me, Mrs. Pierce? And she's like, well... No, <laughs> because you were this tall and you were picking your nose in the corner and needing it. But, you know, now you're going to go to university and stuff and work other jobs. And, and what they said, they broke her heart. And, and I'm not a sap, so, but in the inside, I was feeling it. What she was say, they were saying, look, I remember you just being the nicest lady. You were so kind to us. You served us. You, you did all kinds of great things for us. And here we are 12 years later, and we remember you, Right? So you never know the good that you're doing when you serve other people, when you give yourself away. That's how you beat that little lie in your head when you doubt and you think, I'm not going to do this. There's no point to it. The other story is, and this is one from a homegrown one from within the church. Um, I was friends with a guy who struggled with alcohol very badly. And um, he would go on benders, which means you drink too much alcohol for too long. 
and it became a, a mess. I remember getting a call with two other Christians, people from this church, and we went and we we went to this guy's apartment, and um, yeah, I was basically a fly on the wall. I was kind of floored by what I saw, so I just kind of stood back. The other two, they went right to work. He had destroyed the apartment. He had gone to the bathroom in his pants. Um, it it was a mess, and they gave him back his dignity. They cleaned him up, um, and the the thing that struck me was this, that they never asked for thank you. They never did anything that even afterwards, to be honest, he's a pretty grumpy old guy. I don't think he would have thanked them, and I, he probably would have taken it for granted. And so in this life, they never got anything from that service, and that's a big-time act of service, right? But they got me, and that's what I'm saying is if they doubted and they said, look, there's no point to what I just did. It's all just, you know, he's going to go on a bender in another week. Who cares, Right? That made a huge impression on me that they don't know how much it, it worked inside me so that I decided, you know what, I'm going to live this way. I want to be that same type of person. So you just never know um, the good that you're doing to the people around you when you serve them. So don't doubt. Don't allow that, um, that nonsense to come into your head that I should just give up, okay? So what have we talked about so far? Um, what is the race? We said life's, life's hard. You, you have to have a reality check that life is brutal. It can be very, very difficult to live this life, and especially when you want to serve other people. People um, are really hard to serve sometimes, but, you, but that's the race we're on. And um, we look at Terry, who did everything he did with his last dying breath, literally, and we look at Paul, same thing. They gave themselves away. That's the race we're on. What hinders that race is seduction and doubt. We can be so pulled in to the stuff that's going on around in our culture that we care more about ourselves than we do other people. And uh, doubt, that we think even if I did help people and even if I did try and serve people and um, all that, I don't think it's going to really make a difference. We looked at those two things. We're not God. We don't know how that's going to play out. And um, we have a closer walk with Jesus um, than anything the world could offer when we serve people. But if I left it there... I think I would do you a great disservice, ironically, if I left it there. Because what I've done is built an engine, but you have no gas, okay? I've given you law, but you need grace. So this is where um, the author of Hebrews um, helps us. In verse 2, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Um. So everything I give, like I said, is just kind of advice and technique. This is, this is what's going to change you. A sermon isn't going to change you, right? By Tuesday, you'll probably be asking, what did they talk about at church? And certainly by March 2nd, 2015, you won't even remember that I was here, right? It's, it's reality. The thing that's going to put the bullet in the gun, the gas in the motor, is the gospel. It has to be that, all right? So, um, yes, there's a really interesting place in uh, John 13, where Jesus is uh, it's about to be betrayed by Judas, and this is one of the last times he'll get with all his disciples before the cross. And in John 13, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, was going back to God. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he began to pour water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Um, and then he says to them later on, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. So there's two interesting things that kind of get missed in that really famous story of him washing the disciples' feet. 
One is, what's on their feet? Um, at Christmas time, we have horses walk around at downtown, and they leave us early Christmas presents, uh, which is a kind way of saying that, you know, in their day and age, they didn't have cars. They walked around with sandals. That was their tires. And so to clean someone's feet was an extremely demeaning um, job, similar to my two friends who, who helped out that man that I told you about earlier. So when Jesus is the Lord of the universe, is putting on a cloth to wash their feet, they're not um, taking off like their Uggs with pedicured feet and he's just kind of giving them a little, little squeeze like, this is gross, right? So, but he does it. And then he says, I've left you an example for other people. The other thing is that this, this little curious little part is it says, Jesus, knowing that he'd come from the Father and was going back to him, that's, and then he did that, what he did. In other words, the love of God was in Jesus' heart. And that's what helped him to serve people. That's what put him um, in the place where he could say a little while later, he could, he could look at those guys and say, you have to accept what I'm doing for you um, or you can't be a part of me. In, in the same, same chapter, it says, Peter doesn't want to get his feet washed. He thinks it's too demeaning for him. He says, what I'm doing, you do not understand. But afterward, you will understand. If I do not wash your feet, you will have no share with me. In other words, what he's saying to, to Peter is, you won't let me wash the filth on the outside of you, but I'm going to wash the filth on the inside of you. Tomorrow, when I die on that cross, I'm not just taking away the stains that are on the outside of your body. I'm taking away the sin that's in your heart. The reality is that we have all kinds of opportunities throughout life up until this point to serve other people, but we've missed the mark. We haven't always done it, and God knows that. And for him, it is sin. It's like the filth that's on their feet. Why would you never serve? Why wouldn't you give yourself away? There's no good reason to not serve other people. But I love you so much that I'm willing to go through what I'm going to go through so that you who are dirty on the inside, I'm going to make you clean. I'm going to take your dirt so that you can be clean. That's what he's doing on the cross. And when you look at the joy set before him, what does Jesus lack in heaven? He has the Father. He has the love of the Holy Spirit. He has angels who worship him. He has all glory, right? The only thing he doesn't have is us. That's the joy set before him. He scorned the cross. He hated everything that he was going to have to go through. It was brutal. It was hard. But he did it for the joy set before him of buying you and me for himself, of cleaning us from the inside. So if, if we are going to hurt for other people to make them happy, we have to know that he hurt it for us to be happy. He went through pain so that we could have pleasure. If you get that deeper and deeper into yourself, then you'll run the race well too, and uh, you'll be the type of person who can serve um, for the good of others. So I'll pray, and then we can worship. Jesus, I thank you so much that you did what you did, that you washed um, the feet of our hearts, God. You took away the sin that was filth, and you took it in yourself so that we could be clean, God. And I pray that you would inspire and motivate us to live lives of service for other people, knowing that you served us first, God. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen.